Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of the City Law School's Law and Society podcast. Today in episode two, we will be exploring theories of comparative law. And today we have an extra special treat because our guest interviewee is the podcast's very own co-host, Dr. Sabrina Germain, uh, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Hello, Sabrina. Hi, Adrian. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be talking this time on the podcast. No, definitely. And I'm sure that our listeners are very much looking forward to hearing about your areas of expertise, which happen to be very topical, comparative health law and policy. So would you be able to do us the honor of introducing yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. So um, yes, that's right. I'm a senior lecturer at the City Law School and I'm a legal comparatist. And we'll look uh, today at what that means. I use uh, these methods more particularly to conduct my research in healthcare law and policy. I'm uh, passionate about health inequalities, access to healthcare system um, in the global north and the global south. Uh, I'm also very much interested in uh, women's access to healthcare services um, in Nepal, for example. But I was also very lucky um, during my PhD to be doing some fieldwork in South Africa. Um, and um, hopefully today we will have some time um, to chat about this as it would fit very nicely with the topic of comparative law, uh, giving us a very good vintage point um, to compare what's going on in the UK with potentially comparing what's going on in South Africa. That's really interesting. And I think that comparative law especially is a very uh, popular and hot topic. A lot of people really like comparing. Um, but I actually also think that a lot of people don't really know how to compare besides just saying what one country does and then saying what another country does. And of course, um, you're going to tell us a little bit more about exactly how to compare effectively, um, especially using the law, because I think it can just get into quite a descriptive area. Um, so as you know, uh, being the podcast co-host, we'd like to start off all of our episodes asking our guests the big question. So that's no uh, different for you. So how would you define the concept of law? Well, well, um, it's my turn now, and it's a very complex question, and I'm sure uh, all of our guests uh, will also find it quite complicated, but I uh, will give it a go. Um, I think it's a tool uh, for us to live harmoniously. Um, I often start my lectures by explaining to students that, um, for example, if I interrupt uh, the peace of my neighborhood by um, uh, doing my laundry at 5 a.m., I'm most probably going to be um, slapped with a fine um, by the municipality because although uh, it is to my liking to wake up very early and clean my house and do my laundry, I might be disrupting uh, people's sleep. And um, therefore, we have rules. Um, we have municipal rules uh, for, her, for us to, to live all together um, and not wake up our neighbors, for example. So it's something that helps us live as a society. Um, that's something that structures human interaction. 
but I also think, because I'm very much interested in um, the allocation of resources, that law is something that structure exchanges. Uh, and I'm hoping that it does that. Uh, and sometimes it's, it fails to do that. But I hope it does reduce inequalities um, and create more fa- fairness. I- I'm rather optimistic and utopic in my vision of the law. Of course, um, it's a little bit more complicated in reality. Uh, and it's more complicated because everything has a context. And I think to very uh, uh, many degrees, law is linked to context. Uh, And this is also because I am a legal comparatist, and that's what we're going to be exploring today. And I believe that context matters when we allocate resources uh, to determine who gets what or who is owed what. Uh, We need to have context to create those rules, the law. So we need to understand what law is today. We will talk a little bit about justice. We've touched upon this, I think, in episode one, if our listener listened to that. Um, and we will look, uh, as you mentioned, at comparison. Um, so um, we we should be exploring this understanding that culture uh, and something context specific is important to law because law, uh, we would hope, will adapt to the contour of our society uh, and will be a reflection essentially of that society. Uh, and we would hope that uh, law is wonderful enough that it can lead to social change and better things. Um, So it's important for us to understand each other's cultures, each other's uh, tradition in order for us to have a better understanding of law. And this is why comparative law uh, is so rich and so important in our legal studies. Definitely. And I also think it's particularly important to uh, people at City. Uh, City is a very diverse place, especially the City Law School. Uh, You and I also come from international backgrounds, not from the UK. Um, And it's something that, you know, I'm particularly proud of. And I know you are particularly proud of the different legal cultures and the different traditions that we come from. Um, And I think that it has a really important role to play in today's society, because if you just ignore the international, the global context, uh, you're kind of living under a rock in a way. Um, So this is very much topical. So really looking forward to hearing a lot more about this. Uh, Thank you very much, Sabrina. So I want to now ask you um, a bit more about the technical side of comparative law. So a lot of scholars in particular talk about uh, legal families and legal traditions. And this is quite um, a lot of, you know, like I say, technical language, a lot of jargon. So would you be able to help us and define a little bit and unpack this jargon, legal families, legal traditions. Yes, absolutely. It's not as complex as one might think. Um, So we'll start with legal families um, because um, it's easiest and they're basically groupings or groups um, that have uh, essentially a legal tradition in common. But I'll leave the definition of legal tradition um, for a little bit later because um, it's important to understand what a legal family is first and foremost. We all know legal families. We might not be aware that they are legal families, but we all live in uh, some sort of a legal family. For example, we have the common law um, tradition. Um, This is the law that we live under in the United Kingdom. 
Um, and uh, this is a law that regulates common law countries, um, such as the United States, for example, or Australia, um, uh, or even Canada uh, in some respect, although it's a particular jurisdiction, and I'll come back to this in, in a moment. But um, the common law tradition essentially is based on the doctrine, doctrine of precedent. This is uh, where we see most of our rules and most of our laws based on case law and precedent. Uh, this is why the the, um, the job of a judge uh, is most important in, in those particular countries. There's also a lot of uh, Commonwealth countries because of the UK's history, like my own home country, Malaysia, that follows the common law tradition if we're going to look a bit outside the West as well. Absolutely. And you're making a very good point. The reason for that, um, unfortunately, is the colonial past uh, of the British Empire, um, that this tradition, this tradition uh, radiated throughout uh, all the colonies um, that uh, were conquered by Britain. Um, there's some, uh, as you said, in Asia, um, and uh, most often times we, we think about our own um, legal tradition uh, in the United Kingdom and the United States, but uh, South Africa uh, was also a true certain extent uh, part of, uh, of that tradition, although we will see um, things are a little bit more complicated or particular now uh, with regards to um, legal traditions. With regards to civil law, which is another big family um, that uh, typically Europeans are very familiar with because uh, it was born um, out of France and Italy. These are, were the first jurisdiction um, that adopted that system. Uh, it's essentially a system of codified law. The law is written down. And this is something that's very different from what we have in the United Kingdom. What, for example, we don't even have a written constitution. It's uncodified, right? Um in the civil law traditions, you can find everything in the Code Civil in France, for in France, for example. Uh, but many Asian countries, such as China, for example, also have codified law. And um, many countries in Latin America, for example, Brazil, also adopt that legal tradition. Um, this is also the product of um, uh, invasions and, and past and discoveries um, of the Europeans um, into those lands. Um, and it is a very interesting uh, thing to contrast with the common law. But sometimes uh, we find ourselves in a hybrid situation. For example, in Canada, uh, when we have uh, bi-jurisdictional um, countries where in Quebec, which is a French-speaking country, but also that has a very strong link to, to France as, they were, uh, as the territory was conquered, conquered by the French, uh, that particular area of Canada is under uh, civil law, but the, at the federal level and the rest of the country um, follows common law rules. So um, you have a hybrid jurisdiction, which makes things uh, very interesting um, and a little bit more difficult for practicing lawyers. Yeah, and actually, as you say that, um, I realized that Malaysia is also a hybrid because of the uh, historical religious uh, law that is followed here, Sharia law, because we're a Muslim country. So common law as well as Sharia laws. But I think you're going to speak a little bit about Sharia law, so, so I won't interrupt you on that. No, but that's very interesting, and that's a very good point you're making. Um, right before we jump to Sharia law, another interesting kind of more religious uh, legal tradition is Talmud, the Talmudic tradition, which is 
rooted in Hebrew law. Um, and uh, that is used in certain countries as Israel, for example, uh, alongside um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the kind of secular um, law, but also that has a very important underpinning for the specific jurisdiction um, that is more rooted on um, cultural and religious um, uh, beliefs and uh, traditions. Like you said, another important legal tradition is Sharia law, uh, and you give a very good example with, with Malaysia, um, and this is uh, rooted in the Islamic tradition, the teaching of the Quran and the Hadith, um, and uh, another example of that uh, particular tradition being used on a daily basis is Saudi Arabia um, and other areas of the Muslim world, and uh, there those countries follow um, the um, writings of the Quran and the Hadith um, to structure uh, their legal system. So these are essentially the very big groups of legal families um, we have around the world. So if we look at a map, you would actually be able to draw them out in specific areas. And um, legal traditions are a little bit more complex and refined. Um, legal traditions, as we understand them, have been defined by uh, Patrick Glenn, who was my former professor at uh, McGill University. Um, Patrick Glenn was a pioneer in talking about legal traditions and what we understand by legal tradition. Um, we would say that um, not all law uh, leads to a legal tradition, but Western societies are rather traditional societies. Um, in spite of what we might be thinking, we always think about them as uh, highly um, uh, innovative and evolutive, but in a way, um, they are also traditional, but in the positive sense of the word, uh, the law respects the tradition of the rule of law. Um, and also of rationality. And there is a, a sense of continuity in the Western legal tradition. We see this, for example, by the doctrine of precedent that we have in the UK, where we build on case law. Um, of course, we can overturn law, but we um, know that one of the key principles for our democracies is that there is consistency, and we know what the law is. There's some sort of transparency. It's an interesting way of defining traditional, I think, because when I hear traditional, I kind of always kind of think a bit more like conservative or like old fashioned even. And in a way, that is what uh, these uh, Western societies do kind of follow the old rule of law, the old kind of continuity, as you say. Um, but I don't always think that people would consider the West as a very traditional society, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And, and you're right. And um, if you open Glenn's book on legal tradition, um, he start off by defining tradition uh, by opposition with kind of a more negative connotation. Like you said, tradition being de deeply rooted in something backward or conservative. Exactly. Uh, but essentially, he says tradition is also um, cherishing our customs, um, cherishing our past and our heritage and continuity. And this is something that's very core to the definition of legal tradition. There is an element of temporality. There is also an element of continuity. And there's also an element of communication. And these three elements are fundamental to what we understand as legal tradition. So if we look at temporality, well, it's simple. More recent tra traditions are more fragile. Um, so what we would see as innovative uh, might not lead to a very good legal tradition simply because old traditions and the one um, that have been lasting so far are the one that are more robust. In regards to continuity, which is the second element of a legal tradition, um, it comes into play with regards to memory. 
And that makes sense. Um, that's a shared understanding of something that over time is transmitted. But the fewer people you have remembering, the weaker is the tradition. So collective memory is a very important part of the legal tradition. And that's what I mean by, by the traditional aspect of the rule of law in the West, is that we have a very good shared understanding of what law should look like for our democracies, for example, um, especially when it comes to consti constitutional rules. With regards to communication, well, there's elements about written and oral traditions. And most oftentimes we're under the impression that a written tradition uh, would be more robust than uh, an oral tradition, but we might be wrong here. First, because an oral um, tradition um, has a part of it that um, essentially is linked to to um, the person that transmits. Of course, they put their own spin on it, but a written tradition is, is a bit frozen. So I, I don't know if that makes sense um, um, to you, but these are really the three elements that distinguish a legal tradition from uh, a legal family. That's really interesting. And it's really good to have that very clear distinction between the two. So having thought about what you've just said and keeping, um, you know, especially those three different aspects of what is um, to be a legal tradition in mind, would you then say that technology maybe triggers more uh, robust or more long lasting traditions, given that the temporality component, i.e. the one about, you know, time and being old or new, um, is kind of more easily um, captured or condensed? Well, that's exactly the point about temporality, but also the point about communication, which is the last element, right, of the legal tradition. So I was, as I was just saying, the, the written element uh, might lead us to think that if we have more technology, we can actually encapsulate better that legal tradition and an oral tradition will be destroyed. But um, memory lives very uh, long uh, in certain traditions. And uh, we see that memory deliberately is kept in some uh, legal tradition, actually um, almost aggressively or rebelliously uh, in the memory. And it is um, independent in a way of uh, being written down in a communication. Um, it, it cannot necessarily be looked up, but it lives from one person to the other. When it is written down, we have to trust the author. And that's a little bit different. And, and that can be um, particularly difficult because the author might want to put their spin on it and alter, uh, intentionally or not, the legal tradition. So here, written traditions, although they're frozen, and which is a good or a bad thing, um, they're frozen in one particular interpretation. And that's the interpretation of the author. So that makes them rather inflexible. And for them to survive legal traditions, they, they need to adapt. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into the detail and technicality of legal transplants, but legal transplants are essentially some element of a tradition that is taken by another jurisdiction um, and incorporated into the law. And uh, the reason for that is that basically that legal concept would be more efficient in that jurisdiction than the own tradition um, actually in place in that jurisdiction. Uh, for this, uh, there needs to be elements of flexibility for the tradition to survive and for us to be continuous context matters to that for 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 that tradition to to be alive 
And that's definitely what I was thinking. That's where it went to in my head as well, that the context is super important about all of this. And something that it reminded me of as well is, um, of course, the British system where the constitution is absolutely not written um, in the UK, yet it is still so long lasting and it still persists and we absolutely remember it and we still follow the rule of law. So um, this is a really good point that you make that it doesn't necessarily have to be written down. There's you know, always advantages and disadvantages to both. So now we've talked um, a lot uh, about legal families, legal traditions, and everybody understands what they are and how they differ. Um, But this podcast today is about theories of comparative law. So can you let us know how these two things actually fit into the discipline of comparative law? Well, that's what's interesting. Um, People, when they think about comparative law, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning, they they really think about comparing the law of one country to another, which would be essentially comparing one legal family to another legal family or one legal tradition, which is um, more national and in a certain jurisdiction against another jurisdiction. Um, But it goes way beyond that. Um, It's not only um, just a method, uh, it could also be uh, understood as a discipline. And um, we may be comparing legal traditions, but we can compare many other things. Because essentially, comparative law is, is beyond that. It's a way of looking at legal system. It's a discipline, of course, um, in itself, and this is a controversial point to make uh, on comparative law, but it is said to be also a discipline by some, by others, absolutely not within the realm of law. And it's also a science in itself, um, a a social science, if you want. Some um, says that it does not exist as a family uh, of law uh, uh, or as a discipline, like family law exists or corporate law or criminal law. Um, but I would say other, and, and, and I can, um, tell you a little bit more about that, uh, in a few minutes. So are you saying that we shouldn't just put one country's law and just, you know, stick it next to another country's law, kind of like a, like a two different lists? Because I think that a lot of people think that that's a, that's a comparison, isn't it? So um, it depends on what you mean by sticking it next to one another, uh, which which I quite like uh, the image of uh, one uh, image of a jurisdiction against another image of a jurisdiction. We'll, we'll talk about uh, legal methods uh, if you want in a moment. But what you're essentially saying is uh, we often see that uh, in some um, even scholarly work, um, having somebody describe uh, a jurisdiction and the workings of that jurisdiction and then describe the other working of a jurisdiction, but they never bring them together. That's not comparative law. Yes. And I know a lot of people do that. So I wanted to just be absolutely clear that that's not comparative law in in your view. No, I would not deem that comparative law. It's, It's essentially describing one jurisdiction or analyzing one jurisdiction and analyzing another. But to be truly comparative, you need to bring them together. Um, And you also need to explain how you're bringing them together and why. Um, But this is because comparative law is also a method of investigation um, to look at rules and procedure. So we don't compare um, legal system in isolation. That's not the point. That's not comparative law. So you're absolutely right. It's not about just sticking them one next to the other. Um, Comparative law is a science almost. Uh, and, and, and that's a point that was made by Alan Watson, which is 
the father of comparative law, if you want. Um, he's an academic, no longer with us, but um, his work is foundational because he looked at comparative law as something way more complex than just um, looking at two jurisdictions um, in a vacuum, if you want. Definitely. And that makes a lot of sense. That's, I think, what I meant when I said, like, sticking them next to each other, kind of in isolation. But of course, as this podcast is trying to show everybody, we can't do anything in isolation, in a vacuum, because context is so important. So on that note, then, why should we care about comparing? Why are we even interested in it? Aha, uh-huh. that's the that's the question. Um, that's the million pound question that we always get. Um, for me, it's so obvious. I'm a legal comparatist. I've uh, done this because, as you highlighted, of the fact that um, I come from another country. I live from a country that's outside my home. Um, I've had constantly in my life um, this legal kind of comparatist outlook throughout my legal studies, uh, being parachuted from one jurisdiction to another, doing field work in South Africa, having done my legal studies in France. So I am um, kind of intuitively driven to look at another jurisdiction and compare it to my own. Uh, but that's not everybody. Uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, that opportunity. But uh, also, it's because comparative law is a challenge. It is difficult. It is not simply looking at things in isolation. It is about looking at context. And you're absolutely right. That makes it way more difficult. But we know when we teach comparative law to law students, being at the undergraduate level, which is not the easiest moment in their legal studies, but uh, if we teach it even at the postgraduate level, we make better equipped lawyers. Because we have a modern and interdependent legal system, we are globalized, we are interconnected, and um, that we like it or not, um, exchanges um, and, and issues are related from one jurisdiction to another. So we would need basic training in comparative law and methods to understand that, to make sense of our global village, if you want, and to understand the interactions that legal system have together, the connections they have, and also the disruption that arise from legal system that potentially lead to some social inequalities, for example, as, as we like to look at in, in our work. And students will get to see this in a, another episode of the podcast. Absolutely. Um, as, as I think it's, it, it's a very good example, although we work uh, predominantly on the UK, there are elements of, of comparison and, and, and I'll explain a little bit better uh, when we look at methods, because it's not always about um, comparing something foreign and something national. Um, it goes way beyond that. Um, comparison is beneficial uh, beyond legal studies. I think that uh, athletes compare one another uh, in terms of their timing, when they perform. We know that compar- comparison drives innovation, um, drives people to do better. And it also does something that for me and for you, I know, is very essential. It asks us to suspend our convictions. We have to kind of go through an out-of-body experience in a way when we do comparative law or when we compare because we have to forget who we are to um, try to understand another person's point of view, try to understand another jurisdiction or try to understand another concept. And that's very eye-opening. For me, it's very useful because uh, we need uh, knowledge. For example, I do historical comparative work and I think that we cannot learn how to solve 
problems in the present if we don't look and compare the present with the past, for example. So that's an element that we have in our research is that we're looking at how inequalities were present in migration and healthcare prior to the pandemic, how they have been heightened during the pandemic. We're comparing two contexts and we look to the future to try to reconcile and better things. This is comparative work, some would argue. That is great. And I would never have thought of myself as a comparative lawyer. So it's really fantastic to know that having worked with you on this fantastic research that now, you know, perhaps I can call myself that. That's amazing because that also answers uh, partially one of the one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which would be what would you say to people who are like, well, you know, I don't care necessarily about other jurisdictions. I don't live in another country, um, British, let's say use a British context. I'm in the UK. I study UK law. Um, you know, I want to practice in the UK. So why should I bother comparing? But it's not just comparing one jurisdiction perhaps to another. It can be, as you say, past and present. But um, I don't know, what what would you maybe yeah, say to somebody who, who'd say, I, I, I live in one jurisdiction, don't need to go anywhere, don't want to learn necessarily about other jurisdictions. I don't need to compare. Well, I don't think um, uh, it's a choice anymore. Um, I, I think that there is no other way. And like you said, there is... Uh, timely comparison between the past and the present. There's conceptual comparison. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about the methods if you'd like uh, about a comparative law. But essentially, it does not revolve around necessarily foreign and um, national, like I said, uh, within one society, we can compare and pretty much everything can be compared. Some people say, well, you cannot compare apple and oranges. No, you, you cannot. But if you abstract yourself, you will see that they're both fruits. So you do, you are able to compare apple and oranges. It all depends on the level of abstractions or detail that you'd like to have. And this is very important because um, in trying to be better lawyers, we need to have that ability to transpose ourselves. And that's what comparative law is. It's not just about travel. It's not about intellectual travel. It's also about a gymnastic of the mind to be able to play around with concept um, and mirror them, understand similarities, understand differences, and reconcile all of this. Wow. So... I like the apples and oranges idea because you always hear that famous idiom, like you can't compare apples and oranges. So maybe you could tell us how we would go about this comparison then, because I think there, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong though, there is some value in saying you shouldn't be comparing apples and oranges. Maybe you should be comparing actually red apples and green apples. That's a better comparison, would you not say, if we're going to use that kind of thinking? Yes, absolutely. You're right. I think that we have to be very serious um, in the methods we use. We have to take comparison seriously. I always make that point. It's not uh, just about um, trying to, to draw some parallels and differences. So it's not about putting one thing next to another. It's also about a method of bringing them together or, or, or apart. So we have to know what is the object of the comparison that makes a good comparison, why we want to um, compare them. And this is speaking to the point of saying, well, maybe green and red apples are better to be compared together. Well, if you're making a point about how sweet the fruit is, maybe perhaps you should focus only on apples because oranges, citrus, and an apple have very different components of sugar, for example, let's say. Um, so you have to understand what object you're using, 
why you're comparing them and how. And this is, I would say, the most important point. How do we go about comparing? I won't go and boring you into the detail and technicalities of all the different methods of comparison because there's quite a few, but we've, we've borrowed, we did a, a social science transplant, if you want, um, uh, some of the methods we use in social science to compare, um, and I can speak to some of them. So for example, we have what we call the functionalist approach, um, that approach compares outputs or end products of a legal system. So you would compare how efficient is the justice system in Canada compared to the justice system in the UK. Very similar um, jurisdiction that have a common heritage. So that would be the object would be the justice system. Why are we comparing them? Because these countries are Global North countries similarly situated with similar level of industrialization and both democracies. Um, and how? Well, we would look at the output. Maybe we look both at, at, at judgments um, issued in a certain area. But we can lead a functionalist approach also looking within one jurisdiction. So we can say, well, how efficient is the justice system with regards to penal law? And how efficient is the justice system with regards to civil matters? And when we can compare them, they're very different things, but they're all both the, the, the same um, uh, kind of object. They are justice systems, right? So that's one thing that you could do. Another method of comparison is the systemic approach that compares legal concepts and terms, and that's more a bit abstract, between different legal systems or within one system that's less frequent. But um, the process is less about the result of a legislation, but about the procedure, how we get there. Um, so of course, I'm going to give you the best example I know, and I'm going to do a shameless plug here. It's my book, Justice and Profit in Healthcare Law, and uh, all the listeners should grab a copy. Available in all good bookstores in the UK and abroad. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, even uh, online, if you'd like. But um, this book is, is I, I believe, interesting. Of course, I wrote it. I think that because I'm comparing two countries. Yes. So you're going to say, well, this is a very traditional way of looking at things. It's justice and profit in healthcare law, uh, comparing the United States and the United Kingdom with regards to healthcare uh, and the allocation of resources in this system. But I compare them um, using the concept of justice and profit, of course. Uh, but so this focus is my object of comparison. So I'm using a systemic approach. I'm looking at both healthcare system. I'm looking at high level comparison. I'm looking at principles of allocation. And um, I'm not necessarily looking at the output of those uh, laws, of those broad laws. I'm not looking at how efficient it was. I'm looking at whether or not Justice was in the mind of people that were designing those laws. I'm looking at that particular concept. Okay. Another element that you can use or another method is the historical approach. And that compares the legislative history um, during a particular period or at a particular point in time. Again, this is what I do in the book. I use a comparative approach, so I, I use a systemic approach. Uh, I, I look at justice, but I compare them from the 1940s to 2012. So from the inception of the healthcare system in the UK and even arguably in the US, discovery of penicillin, until modern time where we had two pivotal healthcare reforms, Obamacare and um, the Health and Social Care Act. So that period, I look at both countries at the same time 
looking at a particular concept. And that's a historical approach. So we can combine them, you see. We can combine a systemic approach with a historical approach or a historical approach with a functionalist approach. Um, they're not uh, uh, acting independently if you want to combine them. This sounds really, really interesting, and it would be really good for um, what we talked about in the last episode of um, really looking at things from an interdisciplinary point of view. Um, so I think it would be really interesting for our listeners if you would maybe perhaps illustrate all of this theory with some concrete examples. Um, so I was very interested when you mentioned that you had done some field work in uh, the jurisdiction of South Africa. So shall we have a look at your experiences um, and the expertise that you gained in South Africa? Yes, absolutely. It was a, a life-changing um, moment in my PhD and also personally um, because context matters. Context matters as a person from a mixed background being in South Africa, which is something that I was uh, very uh, lightly aware of, I would say, throughout my, my childhood and bringing in Canada. Um, I come from a mixed background. My father is from the Caribbean and my mother um, it would be, uh, I guess, identified as a Caucasian um, uh, Canadian. Um, when I landed in South Africa, I understood that really context matters because in Canada, we're really a multicultural nation. Um, we, 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 um, we, we call it a salad bowl rather than a melting pot. Everybody has their own identity and interacts with one another. When I led in South Africa, I was uh, given a label. I had an ethnic group of my own. Mixed people in South Africa are called colored. So I thought that was very interesting. And I really felt that my racial identity uh, was very important. So context matters on a legal perspective, but also on a personal level. Um, and also, uh, it contrasts highly with, with the UK, South Africa, as a jurisdiction on a, a legal um, perspective, because as we were saying, we have a non-codified constitution, we, we have a set of laws, but we don't have a written um, set in stone constitution, which contrasts highly with South Africa that has a beautiful constitution. Um, and uh, but it has a, a huge uh, amount of social change that brought that constitution in a deeply um, divided society. So I'm, I'm excited to talk more about this experience and how South Africa is such a wonderful place. This is really interesting because um, I think that a lot of people may be aware of the context and the background of South Africa, but I wondered if you could maybe go into a little bit more depth on this. Why do constitutional lawyers think that South Africa is such a special place? Why are we so interested in South African constitutional law and cases? I know that a lot of uh, scholars do choose this as a jurisdiction that they investigate. Absolutely. Um, well, I think South Africa is a very special place uh, from a political, a judicial and a legislative point of view because of the very tumultuous and sensitive past it has uh, with all these issues around race. Um, you know, and I'm sure our listeners listeners know that from 1948 until the 1990s, um, the apartheid regime was in place in South Africa. And that was a regime um, that uh, institutionalized uh, racial segregation in the country. Um, there was an authoritarian political culture that was essentially based on white supremacy. So uh, the government engaged uh, with, to, uh, through different means, um, the law and, and other kind of cultural means, uh, to repress black uh, what we call colored in South Africa and Asian South Africans ethnic groups. So they were uh, very much oppressed for the advantage of uh, the minority of the white population that was in power. 
The goal of the system was to maintain that white domination in all spheres. So we're talking about politics, the economy, and culture. And had uh, that had a devastating effect on um, um, these ethnic minority groups that were forming the majority of the population. Um, it had devastating effect uh, on their uh, economic capacity, but also social effects that um, still endure. Um, and it might seem far for certain of our listeners, maybe from the younger generation, um, 1996 might seem like a lifetime ago. Um, however, it, it, in terms of uh, law history, it, it, it's, it was yesterday, really. So, um, we see um, huge leap forwards made in South Africa in terms of social change um, from 1996 when they enacted their uh, really progressive and transformative constitution until present day. Uh, something unlike other jurisdictions, some other jurisdictions took centuries to get there. But why were they so quick? to make that change, such a progressive change, uh, while the Rainbow Nation, as Mandela used to call it, um, has a beautiful Bill of Rights. Uh, I encourage all the listeners to go and look at the South African Constitution. It's available online. Um, and that Constitution is so powerful because it continues to be interpreted in reference to that particular historical context. It is not looked at in isolation and it's very much aware of its past. And that's why it's so powerful. So really an excellent example for our discussion about law and context then. So this constitution, the South African constitution, is you know, world famous because of one of its very, very big accomplishments. Um, and as I understand it, that's the idea that it has entrenched what is known as socioeconomic rights um, at its core. Uh, but what exactly does that mean? Well, um, these are beautiful, uh, complex rights. Um, and uh, they are very particular to the South African context. Um, they exist in other jurisdictions, but in South Africa, they come as a holistic list of socioeconomic rights. That, uh, that list is enclosed in the Constitution. And these rights are interrelated, so they link to one another. They're interdependent, meaning that the realization of one right is dependent on the realization of another right, so the, health, the right to health, um, to healthcare, more particularly, is linked to uh, the right to clean environment, for example. And they're mutually supportive. So um, furthering one right helps further another. So that's very, very interesting and, and unusual. It's more unusual because um, they're hybrid rights, if you want. Um, usually, constitutional lawyers, and I'll uh, bring back to the very basic of constitutional law here, we, we view rights um, as either negative rights or positive rights. Uh, and we made this kind of categorization um, to understand what um, civil liberties, for example, they, they, they would give to an individual. So negative rights are protected by the government. Free speech would be a very good example of uh, a protected right. So you shouldn't be prosecuted for speaking your mind. We have this um, in the UK. We have this in the United States, we have this in Canada. Um, but there's no uh, really uh, input on the part of the government for the right to realize. It's just a freedom that is protected, for example. A positive right, on the other hand, is very different. 
uh, it requires that the state mobilizes uh, some resources for the right to be realized. And we will see um, if we look at cases together, and I, I hope we do, uh, that these uh, rights to healthcare, for example, need to have uh, the executive branch of the government mobilize resources uh, in order for people to be given the resources to access the healthcare system and to receive treatment, for example. So these socioeconomic rights and the socioeconomic right to health or to housing in South Africa are very potent rights. They're very powerful because um, they are adjudicated as hybrid, negative, protected rights, and also positive right where the resources need to be mobilized for their realization. So a negative right is a little bit easier to protect because you just have to not do something. You have to not interfere with somebody's um, you know, freedom, as you said, and a positive right probably requires a bit more resources. And then there's the big question, I suppose, of you know, how much resource should be dedicated to that. That sounds really interesting. So let's take a uh, dive right into the landmark cases. Yes. And, and, and to that point uh, that you're making, um, this is something when you will, we will look uh, at, at, at some of the cases that where there, the separation of power, um, which is a political science con- uh, concept, but also very um, uh, predominant in law, um, is very blurry. So we have a dialogue between institution because um, the courts will jump in and tell uh, the government or the executive branch um, that they need to dedicate resources, they need to mobilize. And that's sensitive because in a way they're interfering in the way the government in the country. Uh, But the South African um, constitution encourages that dialogue. There's nothing said about separation of power, which is very interesting. And we need this because if we want to trigger rapid social change, we need to be forcing a little bit the political powers to do the right thing and to dedicate more resources. So one good example of that tension um, and those um, questions of resource allocation and who gets what and how, which brings us back to the first question of what law is, is the Subramani case. That is the um, very best example that we have about what we should be entitled to. So we have a right in South Africa to healthcare, and we know it is a positive and a negative right, so it should be protected. So we should make everything possible not to have barriers to healthcare, but also that we would think implied that the government needs to dedicate resources. So we have Mr. Subramani, um, who is challenging a decision made by um, the health department in KwaZulu-Natal. KwaZulu-Natal is one of the provinces of South Africa. He is uh, meant to be receiving a very costly treatment. Um, he's rather young. He's 41 years old. He's unemployed. Uh, and unfortunately, he suffers from critical um, chronic renal failure. And this is a kind of a incur- incurable uh, um, disease at this stage and is very critical. It affects his, his kidney, his way of life. Um, but the hospital refuses his application for that treatment um, because they say that he does not meet the eligibility criteria for the program. So here we have, of course, criteria. We cannot um, open the floodgates to everybody that wants to jump in into a program. We have limited resources. So we have to have some sort of assessment um, in medical terms of who can access the treatment. The hospital says, unfortunately, Mr. Subamani, you do not meet those criteria. So he goes to court. Here, um, the court sides with the hospital, who is essentially a public hospital. So that's the state. And they found that the policy is rational. So it allocates scarce resources. And because resources are limited and scarce, 
they are doing that properly because uh, they are allocating them for a maximum number of patients to have access to that resource. And that particularly subcase that Mr. Subramani has does not fit that and therefore would distract or divert the resources from a greater number of patients. So um, we're dealing with limited resources. Not all patients can be granted access. So the court says, and it's a very difficult decision, but uh, the hospital and the state is acting within a limited budget uh, and we need to meet a maximum of the population's needs uh, for the application essentially of those socioeconomic rights to health. So it's very interesting what's going on here. Um, when looking at Subramani in the historical context of South Africa, we would find that outrageous. Looking at the NHS, for example, we would say, why are you depriving a man that essentially, uh, unfortunately, died during the proceedings of uh, having a treatment that could save his life? Why would you deny them that? We, we, we cannot even understand this in the context of our first universal healthcare system, which is the NHS. We, we don't think that's something that would happen here. It sounds really unfair, definitely. Right. It sounds unfair. But here we have what we call a utilitarian. This is where justice comes into play, distributive justice. We have a utilitarian take by the court. It says, well, our purpose is to do the maximum with the minimal resources we have. So we will spread it across rather than allocate all the resources to one person. We're ranking the needs of patients and we're saying we can cure more people uh, with these resources than curing just that one individual. So we will choose that. We will choose the majority over a slight minority case. Um, it's difficult to understand um, that because it seems unfair in the abstract. But when we look at COVID-19 um, and we look at what happened um, in triage uh, during the first peak of infection in, in the UK, we see that that reality is not so different from what we've seen. NICE, um, which uh, is the clinical institute that allocates resources for the NHS, in 2020, in March, at the very beginning of the pandemic in the UK, said that we needed guidance to allocate ICU beds. Because at that point, if you remember, uh, we didn't know whether or not we were going to have enough ventilators. And basically, we had to make very difficult choices. So we thought, if we need to get somebody into critical care, we need to run an assessment. NICE uh, produced a very controversial guideline and says, well, we're going to assess the frailty of a patient. And I won't go into the detail of it. But what it did is that essentially it did the same thing as the Supermani case. It ranked the applicant's need, not in terms of their need for clinical care, but on their ability to survive. What it missed when it did that, NICE uh, and the NHS, is the context. They didn't take into account that the fact that they put the emphasis on the ability to survive and frailty was actually very discriminatory. So taking that decision in a vacuum made them um, be subject to judicial review and they had to go back on that guidance and modify it because it was essentially discriminating against disabled and elderly patient. So context matters a lot in healthcare rationing and in questions of justice, essentially, of who gets what and when. So... After this very landmark case of super money, which is clearly extremely relevant, uh, how has the jurisprudence in South Africa evolved after this case, if at all? I know of a case called Group Boom. Could you explain why it marks such a shift in the socioeconomic rights adjudication? Yeah, that's a case of 2001. And I, I would say that's 
the most famous case. Um, uh, Superman is quite famous, but but South Africans pronounce it hoot boom. Oh, sorry. Uh, that in South Africa. Well, don't don't be sorry. I, I would pronounce it the same way as you before I got corrected. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly anymore. Anyway, but um, uh, it's uh, a case that's interesting because it's a case about housing. Uh, and the here, the constitutional lawyers were looking for a more general te- uh, test to understand how resources should be allocated and how the socioeconomic rights should be adjudicated. So they were essentially fetching for a recipe. How? Uh, what are the criteria the court will apply to allocate resources? How many? How much um, of the resources are they um, gonna get to enforce that right, etc.? Um, the court um, rejected the traditional approach, uh, which is the minimum core approach, and that links to human rights law. I won't go into the detail of this because um, that's not the point I'm trying to make looking at this case. I will invite you to read a, an article I wrote on this if you're interested in, uh, 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 about this uh, with this point um, around South Africa. But uh, I can tell you a little bit more about the case because it's an interesting case and in, um, how it changed the law. So uh, Madame Houtbou was um, a poor person um, that got evicted from a land she was occupying. She was squatting on private land uh, because the condition um, in the township uh, of the shack she was living in were, uh, quote unquote, intolerable. Um, and the state um, here made a case that it had no obligation to provide her with shelter as an individual. And the court uh, found that quite uh, interesting and said that they agreed that indeed this state uh, in um, actually the realization of that socioeconomic right to housing does not have, uh, um, uh, there's no expectation of the state to provide Madame Hutbu as an individual a house. But um, they believe that the state's housing program was unreasonable and therefore unconstitutional. And that's the most important part of the case. And that's very interesting. So basically the case demonstrate that having socioeconomic rights in a constitution does not translate into having assistance on demand. It's not because you ask that you're going to get because there's a right. It's more complicated than that and a little bit more nuanced. What the court found is that because Madame Houtbourg is part of a sensitive group, yes, she's part of the Black ethnic minority group in South Africa, she uh, was looked at as being left out from that social policy that essentially is supposed to be helping her. So she is part of a significant segment of the population. She's part of a group that is substantial. And therefore, that housing policy that discriminate against that group is deemed to be unconstitutional and unreasonable. So here you see the kind of um, big effort of the court to contextualize the decision. So it says, I'm not going to give you criteria. I'm not going to give you a recipe on how to allocate the resources, but I will tell you whether or not the policy you have in place um, cuts it for me. And it doesn't really cut it because it discriminates against a significant segment of the population. And this is the segment of the population we're trying to help with the constitution. That's what we're trying to reconcile all those economic uh, inequalities, the context of South Africa. We're trying to better and level the playing field. And by um, having that housing policy, you're not doing that. So I will deem it unconstitutional. Because it really takes into account the overwhelming poverty of certain groups and the resources 
that the executive branch needs to mobilize to meet those needs. And this is where the courts interfering a little bit in the business of the government and the executive saying, do a better job, please do something constitutional, dedicate more resources. Exactly, because they know in the context, they need to give more to this certain group of people. Wow, that's really fascinating. So this judgment another landmark case. Um, Did it have an impact on um, a later case, the court's ruling in the treatment action campaign case, which I know is not about housing, but actually about um, another healthcare thing, HIV treatment, which is a very huge ongoing issue in South Africa. Absolutely. Um, It's it's a very uh, dominant issue. It continues to be in South Africa. Uh, Treatment action campaign, the TAC case, as we call it, um, is about a group of organization um, that brought a challenge against the provision of a specific drug, um, nevirapine, uh, which is a drug that is given to HIV-positive patients. Here, uh, the drug was trialed for pregnant women, um, and it was trialed only in designated sites um, for a specific select group of women because um, there was a need to monitor the potential side effects of that drug. So the government here made... Uh, a case based on the fact that it thought that its program was reasonable. So this is an echo to the Hudbur case where it says, well, we're not doing something unconstitutional. We're containing the program. We're limiting it, not because we're not dedicating the resources, uh, but we're trying to contain the cost because we have limited resources, but also because of safety. So it's not discriminatory against a segment of the population. It is reasonable. Here, um, the court was um, not uh, in agreement totally with the executive, but it also was put in an uncomfortable position by the government because the government, in addition to making that reasonableness point, said that uh, it doesn't understand why the court is meddling in its business saying, well, it's none of your business to tell me how to allocate resources in housing. It's also none of your business to, allo- to tell me how to allocate resources in healthcare because that's my executive power. But you keep on doing that court. Of course, they, they said that more politely, but that was one of the main arguments that they put forward. Here, um, the court was very polite and reaffirmed its commitment to its constitutional role. But because the South African constitution is silent on separation of power, the court think it's its job and its role to actually meddle in the business of the executive. Of course, they wouldn't say it that bluntly, but in order to realize a socioeconomic right and that positive component of the right, it needs to tell the executive, dedicate more resources or do it in that way. So it felt like it was not overstepping and it was important. Um, so it had uh, an awareness of the context here again. The constitutional court was very wise. It understood the context linked to millions of HIV-infected South Africans and how that particular drug and its availability would change their livelihood forever. It would be available at a very minimal cost, so it was very easy to implement this policy. It was not like they had to mobilize loads of resources to do that, and it would make a great impact. So here, again, the decision was made really based on the context of the South African society. Wow. 
this is really different stuff. And I think it's really interesting to hear about it. And there's one more case I'd like you to talk about. The most recent case in this kind of series of decisions on socioeconomic rights, uh, the Mazibuko case. So did the court change its approach or did it keep continuing in this nice spirit of context? Um, some say that Mazibuko is the exception which confirms the rule. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, I'm I'm so sorry to burst that positive bubble of uh, social change and progressive rights. It is the exception confirming the rule. It's a case from 2008. And here, um, the applicants wanted the court to consider whether or not it was constitutional for the government to install and operate prepaid water meters. So these water meters would automatically disconnect when a quota was reached. So uh, the amount of water was reached as it was set by uh, a policy um, by the government. So the government would say X amount of liters should be allocated to uh, that area. And once that uh, quota of water is reached, stop the provision. Um, so it would not be possible to get any additional water without uh, credit. So they wanted to know, is that legal or even constitutional um, on the part of the government? Here, the court took a very different approach, just surprisingly, and said uh, that there was uh, a reasonableness in that approach, and it rejected all the context-based arguments that were made. It was very shocking because of the applicant's poverty. We're talking about areas of the country um, where those meters are installed in townships, so the, the poorest area. And so not having access to water is uh, very impactful on that population and caused great hardship. And it was bluntly disregarded by the court. No point was made on that. That came, of course, to the great disappointment of the poor applicants. Uh, it was devastating, but also very disappointing for constitutional lawyers or lawyers like me looking at socioeconomic right. Um, because of the absence of context and the ab absence of uh, sensitivity of the court to, to these issues. So it's a not liar, um, and, but it's important to be looking at it um, because this tells you about the importance of context. Not putting in context uh, shows blindness um, to social inequalities. And I think that's the point that that case makes. Absolutely. I mean, everybody would probably totally agree that not having access to water is really awful. And uh, especially for, uh, you know, people in poverty, that seems shocking. So it's a good kind of, yeah, as you say, exception that confirms the rule or an exception which proves to us how important context is. So now that we've talked so much about context and you've set everything out in such fantastic detail and using the example of South Africa so rich, um, we've come to the last but not least question that we like to end all of our episodes with, with rather, um, by asking you, in your opinion, does context matter? I'm pretty sure I know your answer to this question, but let's just go into it. How would you therefore define law in context? <laughs> well, this is a great question. I love that question when we ask it. I, I love to answer it myself because it's an easy one for me to answer. Um, essentially, in the light of what we've seen and the work that I do and we do, we know that context is everything. So context in law is an agent for social change. I want to believe that wholeheartedly. Context and society have a potential to be better we have to be positive and believe that. And this is why I think we both got into legal studies. And this is why I became a lawyer, because I believe that law in context has, has a great possibility. 
the context can nourish better law uh, and has the potential to create some very uh, progressive change. So that's what I would answer to that uh, big, great question. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for being the second guest on the City Law School's Law and Society podcast. We've loved hearing about all of your expertise and the very, very interesting jurisdiction of South Africa. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.